Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right. Welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Judge Monique Diaz, the 150th Judicial District elected judge here in Bear County. Thanks, Judge, for being here. Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. That was quite the introduction. Well, you know, we put a lot of work into it. And and Judge Diaz and I go way back long before either of us were really more than, uh, you know, just trying to find our way in the legal and showing up at political fundraisers for one reason or another and the lowest of the low people on the totem pole at that point. Uh, but we met a long time ago and we've stayed in touch and now you're a judge and I kind of know how to find the courthouse now. So we've we've grown up a little bit. We sure have. It's been quite a while and there's no need to really find the courthouse anymore because everything is on Zoom. This so is you true. can find it in the comfort of your home, Justin. You know, unfortunately, some of the smaller counties, though, don't really like the Zoom and there are some places that are requiring people to show up. I have heard that that's the case, and it's my understanding that uh, under the the Supreme Court has issued a series of orders that have helped guide um, our decisions and whether we can have in-person hearings or not. And so it's my understanding that some counties can can do that uh, if they have a plan that's been pre-approved and if their local county officials uh, decide to to proceed with that. So here in Bear County, we're not quite ready for that yet. Well, there was a federal court case in Sherman, Texas, that got going, and last I heard, they had traced it out to 40 people that had gotten sick from just that trial. They canceled it midway, and then just, it kind of went gangbusters. I, I saw that, Justin, and that's one of the reasons why we're being really careful here in Bear County. Um, uh, you know, we do have a plan that was approved by the Supreme Court already. Um, however, our local administrative um, judge and our local officials are not ready to proceed yet, uh, they're really relying primarily on the Metro Health uh, recommendations on when it's safe for us to all proceed. Now we have plexiglass up in our courtrooms and we, you know, we're ready to go um, otherwise, but I think they're looking at things like uh, they have some sort of a matrix where they look at the positivity rate, the death rate, and the amount of hospital beds. So that's part of what we're, we're looking to. So I don't see us being ready Um, by the tentative kind of April 1st deadline that you may have heard about. Well, it's good. It's good that we have elected officials uh, paying attention to science and their decision-making. So we're going to get to the courthouse here in a second. I want to ask you some questions about that. Uh, But just sort of some of the, the, we kind of go through a general getting to know you. This is San Antonio podcast, San Antonio stuff. Uh, Judge, what are you doing to decompress during all this? Because honestly, it, you know, at first I think we were all kind of like, oh, let's make uh, sourdough bread. And, you know, now we're watching an insurrection. I mean, it's, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. Um, I wish I had a better way to decompress, but instead I've just put on a few pounds, but I'll lose them. Uh, what have you been doing to sort of stay sane? Uh, well, I also put on the, the COVID-19, as I, I like to fond, fondly call it. Nice. Um, but I, I was one of those people that uh, got in line to buy a bicycle, and I've been trying to enjoy the outdoors uh, as much as possible, riding my bike, 
wherever I can. I actually sold my car because I was using it so little. Um, uh, besides that, I have, I, you know, I've been working really hard, but I, I've been enjoying podcasts like yours, mm-hmm. um, trying to catch up on reading and puzzles. I okay. am obsessed with puzzles. They've been uh, a good way to decompress. So do you live close enough to the courthouse to ride? Well, I don't like to comment on where I live, Mr. Hill, but um, I do like to ride around the the city wherever I can. And we have a, my partner and I have a car. So when I need one, I need to get places. You have access to a car. Okay. <laughs> you know, I tell people I ride to the, to the office and I do ride to the office. I just don't tell them how close it is because it's way less impressive when I, when I tell them. That. <laughs> and I got a, so I've gone bike crazy. I bought an electric bike. It kind of got forced upon me. Uh, which is really awesome, but I also did the Peloton thing, and now I'm in that never-ending trap of it'll be delivered two weeks, and then it gets keeps getting pushed, so I don't have it yet. Oh, man. Yeah. Well. Um, what are your sort of, you know, we're in quarantine. We don't get to go out. You know, you and I have both always kind of been social people. We'd see each other out and about at whatever's going on in town. Um, have you gotten into, the, into any of the Netflix stuff or any of the shows, any of the streaming stuff? Um, I, I have binge watched about everything you can binge watch and, um, I've kind of maxed out on that, um, and, and circled back around to shows that I've watched in the past even, but I've really been trying to get away from the streaming and really trying to spend more time outdoors. I, I went fishing this past weekend, Whoa. caught my first rainbow trout, uh, first time I went fly fishing. Um, and so I'm, I'm really trying to stay away from that. Uh, and to try to, um, you know, keep a positive outlook. If a lot of those Netflix shows and the, the news nowadays can, can really add to the heaviness that we're experiencing. Yeah, <laughs> There's not no, a lot of to watch out there. Um, I did watch The Mandalorian lately. I binge watched that. And that was, that was a fun, lighthearted um, show to watch on Disney Plus that I highly recommend. You know, I've just never got into any of the Star Wars stuff, so... But somebody told me I'd still like The Mandalorian, even if I did not get into it. I am in the same boat. So, so part I'm- of part of my COVID-19 was that early on, you know, support local, you know, go to your favorite restaurants and do takeout. Let's help them kind of stay afloat. I mean, I could float now because of it, but have you had any favorite places for takeout or kind of, you know, that you've sort of trended into during COVID? So I... <sighs> You know, unfortunately, so many folks in the industry have really been affected. A lot of my favorite places I've watched shut down or have to scale back. um, And that's been really hard to watch. I'm still trying to support, uh, you know, all of uh, the local businesses, at least through delivery, um, you know, contactless delivery and really supporting that. Um, In terms of specific uh, restaurants, I have kind of specific genres of food that I like. Um, I really like Thai food. So anywhere that I can get some good uh, Thai food delivered to me, I'm really enjoying that. Um, I'm I'm trying to to eat a little bit healthier to take care of this COVID-19 issue, though. (laughs) I live very close to Thai D, so... um... I, I eat there more than I probably should. Um, you're you're born and raised in San Antonio, right? Yes, born okay. and raised here, but proud Puerto Rican and Dominican. Okay. Well, you you should be good at this question. I always ask people what their favorite hidden gems are in the city, sort of the off the beaten path places. You know, Nuremberg gave me Denman Estate Park or something I'd never heard of. There have been sort of some, you know, I thought I knew San Antonio okay, but 
I've sort of been put back in my uh, seat from some of them. What are some of your favorite places in town, maybe kind of off the beaten path that, you know, you have somebody in town say, well, you really got to check this out. Oh man. Um, you know, I know it sounds really cliche, but the extension of the river walk, sure. uh, people have not enjoyed going um, on, on the South end of the river walk and kind of going all the way to the missions it is it is so different from what it looked like uh, growing up, which was unusable. So that that's really been something that I encourage people and I try to take folks to go enjoy. Um, there's some some really great gems um, on the south side and the west west side. Some good restaurants that I try to take people to. Um, and, you know, I, I still do take people to like the St. Mary's Strip and the Pearl. And you have to have that experience yeah. to see kind of how San Antonio has been. Um, been developing. Uh, but, you know, I grew up more so on the north side. So I've been enjoying uh, kind of learning what else there is available. I'm, I'm experiencing the city almost as a newcomer as well, because it's changed so drastically over the past decade or so. The decade of downtown um, ha has been really beautiful to watch. Uh, and so kind of enjoying uh, watching that development has been wonderful. So just taking people on things that used to be touristy things to do that are now things that I think uh, locals can really appreciate uh, just as much as, as tourists can. Yeah. Uh, Japanese tea garden was always one for me that I thought, you know, this is, and if I take people there, they're always still just like kind of blown away by it. It's just a unique, weird place tucked over by the zoo. That's a very good one. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's one of my favorites. What's your favorite fiesta event? <sighs> Coronation. All right. I assumed you were going to say that. Uh, I, I, I used to be able to, to participate. I, I, I was on stage and, and, you know, made a fool of myself quite a few times for a good cause before I took the bench, but you can't do it judge, anymore. As a judge, it, uh, it is, it's frowned upon. Um, oh. We're not uh, allowed to um, solicit funds on behalf of uh, other organizations. And so there's a perception that that could be considered that. So that's why I don't participate anymore while I'm on the bench, but support it um, however I can otherwise. I did see Kevin Wolf get on there and make a joke about getting a DUI, but I guess he wasn't soliciting funds. So that would be a little bit different. Well, he's not a judge, so I, I don't think he has that prohibition. Mm. That's specific to, okay. to judge. It's not elected officials. It's judge specific. It's judge specific. Yes, okay. we, we can't lend our name to uh, to causes like that. So we're going to talk about a cause you're involved with, but that'll be an interesting question about whether you can be involved in that. So you became an elected official, an elected judge in Bear County in, I guess, 2018 election sworn in in 2019? That's correct. So you're halfway into your four-year term? I am, yes. Okay. I have to start running again uh, this summer. Okay. Uh, what, yeah. what made you decide you wanted to run for... Uh, you know, judge, district judge at that? Well, when I decided to run uh, was right around the time that um, uh, former President Trump was elected. And um, I, along with a lot of other folks, I think just, you know, I felt a true sense of helplessness uh, in terms of what was happening at the national level, the, the political discourse that we were all experiencing and the trickle down effect that that had on families, children uh, here in our community. So I personally um, looked around me and thought, you know, I wanted to do something about this more than what I was able to accomplish through my law practice and my community service. And uh, 
for me, running for judge was an opportunity to show people in my community that uh, you, you can be treated with dignity and respect no matter your race or you know how much money is in your pocket or who you love. Uh, and I think that's really critical for, especially at, at the courthouse amongst our judiciary, for us to, to understand that, that that is what our elected officials um, should really uh, exhibit um, and, and especially our, our judges. So I saw it as an opportunity to, um, to show people that, that respect uh, and I love the law and I love community service. Uh, and, and you know that I've always been uh, very giving with my time on, on the side and done a lot of things for free, much like you're doing with this show as a service to our community. Um, so I saw it as a chance to make a bigger impact uh, for, for the folks here in San Antonio and it's where I was born and raised. So I wanted to give back to the city that's given so much to me. And you were always, you were always involved in politics as long as I've known you. Then you were a practicing lawyer and sort of trended more into the practicing lawyer. You know, there's lots of different places you can go in elected office as a lawyer. Is there a reason you chose a district court bench over maybe a county court or a criminal bench or, you know, any of the other options? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, for me, that was where my, I had the most experience. I had a general law practice, so I did criminal law, but I did more civil law than anything. And before I took the bench, I had a, a law firm that um, represented small, small cities, uh, governmental entities, uh, did a lot of practice in civil district courts. Uh, did a lot of family law. So uh, that that was kind of my home, uh, what I was most familiar with. But I, having had that experience on the criminal side has really been helpful um, on the civil bench. And, and also having had a general law practice, there's not much that comes across my bench that I haven't experienced or dealt with in some form or fashion as an attorney. So it's been really, uh, really helpful for me. So you decide to run for office. You know, the one thing I always hear people complain about is you got to raise a bunch of money and that's, you know, sort of an, an over overwhelming piece of the campaign, but outside of sort of raising money and, you know, shaking hands and giving your stump speech, anything surprising about the campaign or actually becoming the candidate that you didn't expect? Sure. Um, you're right. I, I, I worked on the side of my law practice doing some consulting and fundraising for other people. So it really made it a lot easier for me to, to raise money for myself, uh, to know what the basics were uh, required to run a successful campaign. But I wasn't quite, quite ready to, um, to kind of talk about myself in the way that you really have to be so self-promoting. I was used to promoting other people, not necessarily myself. So uh, one of the things that uh, when people ask me, you know, that are interested in running for judge, you know, what should I do uh, to start off with? One of the things that surprised me was I had to sit down and figure out what is what is my story? What am I about? What is my vision? Those really um, overarching overarching questions um, were things that I had not thought through for myself or for other candidates before. So that was a really interesting learning experience about myself, reaching out to my family members and asking them what their opinion is uh, of me and, and, you know, what they thought I was going to be when I grew up and what experiences they feel molded me into who I am today. I learned a lot about myself. Uh, you know, I've been through quite a few election cycles here and you ran a very different judicial campaign. You sort of pulled from your, you know, friends in the industry you threw, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say some of your events were almost like 
you know, backyard parties, catching up with old friends. I mean, it was a different way of running a campaign, especially for something that's always kind of serious and austere, like a, a judicial race. Um, was that just a product of sort of who you are in your, in your social circles? Or did you make a conscious effort that you were going to run a, you know, a different campaign to try to draw in more people? I would say it was both, Justin. I think for everyone that runs for any office, it's really important to tap into your circles, um, uh, uh, your friends, your family, and, and make the most of what you what you have available. But I did make a conscious effort to try to bring more people into the fold that may not otherwise think that you know who you elect for your judge matters. I, I wanted to uh, to bring in folks that don't usually get involved in judicial races to help them understand the importance of um, knowing who your judges are, voting for your judges, um, and and I I'm confident that we had an impact um, on on a different uh, base of people um, that that never voted for a judge in their life before, never knew why it mattered, and and now hopefully do and will continue to vote in judicial races going forward. It was definitely a different crowd of people that were at your events. I mean, it was. I mean, it just really was. It was you know the crowd I would see at fiesta events or at social events, but you know you sort of got people excited about about a judicial race, um, and it was. You know, it was fun to see. It was a different set of events, and it was a, a different thing to enjoy when some of these events are, you know, you've been there. You know, they're you like. You have to make people want to go. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's right. There was one event on, like, the kind of the near east side, right outside of the Pearl. It was in a backyard. I did have an actual uh, backyard, a uh, paella pachanga. It was, it was a paella cook-off yeah. uh, where uh, we had uh, King Pelican playing uh, for right. the pachanga part of it. Um <laughs> Were it not about 110 degrees, it would have been a little more enjoyable. So I was going to say, I went with Tim Maloney, and I just remember watching his suit get like wetter and wetter as the day went on. So, you know, we didn't stay super long, but it was a great event. Um, so you've been on the court somewhere along that, uh, that time you've been on the court. Judge Sakai got sort of put in head of or spearheaded the effort to create, and it's a mouthful, the Commission on Collaborative collaborative strategies to prevent and combat and respond to domestic violence. I, I butchered that, but he, he became the spearheading sort of uh, main guy on it. He asked you to be a co-chair as best I could tell with judge Ron hell. Uh, almost um, correct. Uh, so we, we like to refer to it as just the collaborative uh, commission on domestic violence okay. shorthand because that is a mouthful. Um, but my my co-chair uh, on, on behalf of the city of San Antonio because this was created as a joint city county collaboration for the first time ever. We had leaders in our community um, in the area of domestic violence spearheaded by the city and the county. Um, and so I was the representative and the co-chair on behalf of the, the county. On behalf of the city, my co-chair was Dr. Colleen Bridger, who you may uh, recall has been our uh, Metro Health Director. Yeah. I call her the COVID czar yeah. um, for quite a long time. Uh, however, uh, the, this past month was her last uh, month with us as co-chair and we'll be rolling out a more formal um, announcement, but we're excited that uh, Maria Villa Gomez uh, is going to be taking her position. She is an assistant city manager with the city of San Antonio who oversees police and fire. So that's going to bring a, a, a new element to the work that we're doing. We're really looking forward to, to having her as my co-chair on the commission. So you're the county co-chair. She's the city co-chair. What's Sakai's title? Judge Sakai. 
he's the founder. Okay. So he, he founded it by by court order, a special order as the local administrative judge of the time. Uh, created the commission, uh, and he did it in conjunction with city manager Eric Walsh. Uh, to go back just a little bit, um, uh, city councilwoman Shirley Gonzalez and councilman Manny Palayas both uh, requested that the city put together a comprehensive domestic violence plan after the absolutely horrendous statistic that Bear County um, had the honor of holding. In 2018, we had the highest the highest rate of murders of women by men in all of Texas. Ugh. And so that really spurred um, uh, the community calls for action. Uh, and uh, we partnered up, Judge Sakai reached out to Eric Walsh and they, they partnered up and decided that they needed to create this joint city county collaboration. And Judge Sakai founded that through, through an order of the court and is very much involved in all of the work that we're doing. So I want you to tell me sort of what the purpose of it is, but when I was reading it, it, it really kind of reminded me, I got to interview a guy who founded Cure Violence, and his whole thing was, let's treat violence like an epidemiological problem, like a virus, like some sort of contagion that can be controlled. And it sounds a little bit like y'all are, you know, y'all are taking the position of let's treat domestic violence like a public health problem as opposed to a criminal problem. So what's sort of the goal of the CCDV? Hi. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, we, we are definitely taking an approach that uh, domestic violence should be addressed as a public health crisis. And uh, it really has been helpful to have this partnership with the city um, and a very active um, participation on behalf of Metro Health. Uh, so the majority of the work that we do is geared towards prevention of domestic violence. In order for us to really see a decrease in these in these numbers, we have to both yes address the immediate concerns that we have uh, of handling domestic violence through the justice system once it finally gets there. But we want to try to prevent it from getting there in the first place. And so uh, the the commission uh, consists of right now we have eight committees. It started off as five, and each committee is. Uh, specific to an industry. We have a Judiciary Committee, Law Enforcement Committee, Nonprofit Committee, Prosecution Committee, Healthcare Committee, Data, Faith-Based, and Education Committees. And the goal is that each one of these committees are convening the leaders in, uh, in their respective committees that deal with domestic violence. We meet at least as an entire commission once a month, uh, and then each committee also meets at least once a month. Uh, and what we're doing is looking at um, the gaps in our community in domestic violence and identifying evidence-based strategies to address those gaps. And every committee has taken on one to two gaps to address in the first year of our work. Um, so it's been really comprehensive uh, and it touches on all of those different industries. And the goal is that long-term by working as a collaboration, will actually be able to move the needle um, on both preventing domestic violence in addition to uh, addressing the immediate needs uh, regarding domestic violence. I can go into more details about what those strategies look like, but that's generally what we're doing as a commission. Like what's an example of a gap? Okay. Um, so one of the biggest gaps that uh, that we're addressing through the uh, through the Judiciary Committee and the Nonprofit Committees, for example, is access to legal representation. You're a lawyer, you understand this. Um, there, there is a great need for um, 
for legal representation at the pro bono or low bono level, not only for victims of domestic violence, but also for defend for respondents and defendants. Uh, what we see is there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are working really, really hard to provide representation to victims, in particular victims seeking protective orders. But to step back a little bit, domestic violence doesn't just happen in the context of a protective order. We see domestic violence in divorces, in child support, in child custody disputes, and we're really talking about an entire family unit that we need to help. So uh, getting access to legal representation for victims beyond just seeking a protective order, where they can also get help with the divorce and the child custody uh, or child support issues, and also for the respondents to understand the court's orders and have an increased chance of, um, of abiding with those orders if they understand them is all part of the, the critical component when we're talking about prevention. Domestic violence is a generational, um, you know, very much learned behavior. And so in order for us to stop it long-term, we need to be sure that a victim has the ability to get stable, that they have the child support that they need, the housing that they need, employment to actually safely leave an abuser and be able to be on their feet. We need to get the entire family's counseling, make sure that the children are taken care of, uh, that the children have counseling so that they don't um, hopefully end up being uh, victims or perpetrators themselves as statistics show often happens. So uh, that, that's one of the gaps that we're, we're working on. Um, just to kind of name a couple others, uh, there's a need that we're working on to um, put a process in place for uh, the transfer of firearms when an individual should not be possessing firearms per a court order, per statute in domestic violence cases, we're putting a process in place to make sure they actually get rid of those firearms. Um, we have a communications campaign to make sure that we're getting the word out to our community about what is a healthy relationship and what isn't a healthy relationship, along with providing resources to folks and make sure they know that you can, for example, call or text 911, that we have these resources available uh, in our community. So those are just three of the about 15 or so strategies that, that we're working on to address those specific gaps in our community. So does it sound like maybe we're in the first quarter of really trying to identify where, the, where we're lacking as a community so then we can start putting strategies together? Well, we already conducted a comprehensive evaluation um, before we began our work in conjunction with the city of San Antonio of all of the gaps. I mean, there, there's a long list yeah. of gaps in the community, and we've identified a long list of strategies. Where we're at is uh, the, the first stage, the first years of worth of work, what we believe we could accomplish in the first year to two years. And once we move past those strategies, we circle back and we, I, we pick additional strategies. This is a, a multi-year approach that I, I foresee us continuing to do this work um, for at least the next five years. I'm hoping for, for longer until we can address every one of those gaps. Is, uh, I mean, substance abuse has to be a part of this, I would assume, right? Uh, there, we certainly see substance abuse in a lot of cases that involve domestic violence. Um, and uh, it's, you know, we, we try to be really careful about how we talk about that. Uh, you know, people that are uh, offenders of domestic violence may also have substance abuse issues, but substance abuse is not considered to be a 
a reason why people commit domestic violence. It, it is a, a common factor that is present at the same time. Um, but you really have to work on uh, the an individual's behavior and their understanding of uh, what is proper behavior and what isn't, why they are engaging in that type of behavior outside of uh, substance abuse. It's usually um, something more than that. It's not uh, generally considered to be uh, caused by substance abuse issues. They're just concurrent to domestic violence. So when I interviewed Gary Slutkin on the, the cure violence part, a big part of their strategy is the granular community level of having what they call interrupters, individuals that are kind of community leaders. And it might just be the guy on this one block everybody turns to. Is is the faith-based arm sort of the arm to really get out into the communities, or is there an additional arm to really try to uh, rope in our sort of community leaders on a real you know granular sense? That's a good question. Um, so within the, the commission, um, the all of the leaders in, in domestic violence, leaders of our nonprofits, and really those grassroots folks um, that are going out and doing that type of work are members of the commission and participate in our nonprofit group and other meetings that we have. The commission itself, um, we, we have an element of our work that it is based around community engagement. So prior to COVID, we were doing quarterly um, events in the community where we would go out ourselves um, in different parts of the community, talk about our work, take questions. With COVID, we had to transition to remote options to do that. Uh, and we're still doing that. We're now going to begin doing those monthly instead of quarterly. Uh, but to your question about the faith-based community, yes, what we're trying to do is, is ensure that we're reaching out to as many people as possible to really break the stigma about talking about domestic violence, uh, to provide resources, to help people understand that they're not alone. And we have such a large faith-based community that it's really important that we reach out to them and uh, ask for their help in reaching out to their, their members to relay these messages, to provide them the resources that they need. So that's one of the ways we're trying to get out there, but the commission on its own also has its efforts uh, collectively to, to reach out to the community. We're now doing that through, through Facebook Live. Is this all uh, community? I mean, is it all county or city funded? Is there a fundraising 501c3 arm to it? So far, it has been, uh, most of our initiatives have been funded by the city of San Antonio, and we have had some initiatives also funded by, by the county. Uh, we're really grateful for both of their support. Um, the, the city of San Antonio put forth $3 million towards wow. uh, our strategies, uh, and that was after the initiation, uh, after COVID hit. Um, the, the county has also put significant dollars. They recently announced a, a million dollar allocation to several of our strategies. We're going to be getting some civil family violence uh, staff on, for the civil district courts. They, they funded an additional civil uh, a prosecutor for the protective orders, uh, two more on the criminal side. Um, we, we have formed a, a, a nonprofit uh, in the event that we need to raise money for some of our other strategies, but really UHS has been a huge partner as well in terms of funding. Um, they have funded a huge communications campaign and, and that's through the healthcare committee and that's co-chaired by George Hernandez with UHS and Jalyn Burley with Center for Healthcare Services. They, they've put a significant amount of money into, into this effort. And then we have grants 
that are funding um, new positions. SAPD just got 25 new detective positions. Uh, the uh, Family Justice Center uh, has four or five additional new positions through grants that we've um, we've helped them obtain. So we're anywhere we can find the money, we're asking for it, um, we're trying to get it, and we're building this patchwork approach to really make it a true public-private partnership. Um, it kind of brings me back to your previous statement on corneation. Is, is there something different for your involvement on this since it's a county project that allows you to be part of that? So I don't solicit funds for any of our uh, initiatives. Uh, the only thing that I had, and so as a judge, I'm able to, um, to participate in things like this that pertain to the justice system. So my role, uh, my role in this and the creation of the commission by Judge Sakai's court order uh, created it specifically for the purpose to assist the courts. Huh. Great. With the issue of domestic violence, and it has uh, grown into uh, you know various other committees that are um, on their own finding funding for their specific initiatives. Uh, the only thing that I have um, you know asked for money for is from the county uh, for uh, funding for civil uh, positions on the civil side. Um, we we really really uh, want to get to the point of having a domestic violence court on the civil side. We're not quite there yet, but we were able to receive funding for um, some social workers, a compliance officer, and some support and management staff. So we're really stepping up our approach to domestic violence um, on, on the civil side. So things like that um, are okay, yeah. but it's a good question. I, I do have to draw a line. Are there other counties or cities that y'all are sort of trying to emulate that has been successful with this sort of model? So we're really looking across across the nation. Um, I uh, we're very fortunate to have a, a dedicated national consultant to our efforts uh, who works for the National Council on Juvenile and Family Court Judges, who's worked with communities all across the nation on you know you name it, everything that we're working on. So he's helped us connect with other communities here in Texas. We do have some others that we look to, for example, on the firearm transfer initiative. There's already a process in place in Houston, El Paso, Austin, uh, Dallas. And so we're trying to emulate uh, those best practices here for us in, in, in Bear County. And we'll be announcing that uh, pretty soon in the next couple months. Um, uh, nationally, some other models are Seattle, uh, LaForge, uh, Louisiana um, is also well known for, for their process on firearm transfer, but the, the makeup of this collaboration is, uh, is a best practice for uh, making sure that you make, you actually implement change in a community on domestic violence, bringing people together in this collaborative fashion through uh, this community collaboration is a well-known practice that has a success rate in other communities. And that's what we're trying to emulate here. Uh, the website is ccdv.org and y'all have a ton of information sort of mostly about San Antonio, but you know, I was just going through it. It's interesting to see how by zip code, you know, the, the incidents, I would say, of reported domestic violence are, are kind of starkly different. I mean, is the commission really looking at it from that kind of level, or are we sort of at a city level right now, or are certain neighborhoods and zip codes getting more attention than others? 
Um, and the work that we're doing is more comprehensive. And, and you're right that we do see more zip codes that have a higher incidence of domestic violence. And that's because domestic violence increases uh, in times of stress. It increases with financial stressors or other stressors. And you tend to see that in areas of low socioeconomic status. However, we uh, do have to caution that domestic violence does not discriminate. We also see it uh, in higher socioeconomic status neighborhoods. So we see it everywhere, but it happens to be more prevalent uh, in, in, in some areas. So for some of our initiatives, for example, um, the, the city of San Antonio has been working on implementing this triple P parenting program. That's one of the uh, strategies is providing education to parents within schools on domestic violence. And so some of those pilot programs are being implemented in school districts with lower socioeconomic statuses. So that's where we see um, that there may be a little bit more focus on those areas right now. Uh, but the work that we're doing is much more comprehensive in nature because we, we strongly believe that it's something that needs to be addressed across all zip codes. And has there any has there been any good data come out, uh, you know, during COVID, everybody knows stress has increased, people have lost their jobs, incidents of suicide and violence, best everybody can tell, have gone up kind of precipitously. Has Bear County kicked out any data yet on that, or is it still kind of being compiled? Um, it, it's being compiled every every month, and um, we don't have uh, a a really good sense yet of what the impact of COVID is on our, our community. The number, the data is really hard uh, to evaluate because the, when we're looking at data, we're looking at data that you, you receive from law enforcement agencies, which necessarily leaves out all of the people that are too scared to reach out to law enforcement or never do. It's the most underreported crime. Um, but in Bear County, by October of last year, we already had more domestic violence murders than we had the year prior. Wow. Um, and so uh, we, we do believe that there has been an increase in part potentially caused by these stay at home orders. People are more uh, often at home with their abusers, with increased stressors. And so we think that that is part of the reason But it's too early to really um, evaluate the, the long-term impact of, of COVID for our community. I will say that worldwide, domestic violence has increased uh, as a result of COVID. Calls have increased, deaths have increased. Uh, I, I know in France, there was a 30% increase in domestic violence since the March stay-at-home orders, and that's roughly what we have seen worldwide is somewhere between 20 and 30% in nations that are tracking um, those numbers. So, it, it's it's certainly not getting better right now. And we're trying to adjust the work that we're doing um, to make sure that we're mindful of all of the changes that have come about as, as a result of COVID. And um, our, for example, we've had PSAs running for the last several months, making sure people know all of the different options they can get help while they're at home. You can apply for a protective order online now through the Family Justice Center. Huh. You can text 911 if you need help. Uh, everyone is offering online and virtual services. Uh, the Family Violence Prevention Services, the shelter provides free counseling and all sorts of things uh, that I'm happy to give you their contact information. But we're trying to shift to that to make sure people know that that help is out there and that they're not alone. I mean, I went to your website and there's a pop-up that, you know, basically says your data can be tracked. And I mean, it, it just seems like that's for people that, you know, maybe they've got a intimate partner who's going to go check their search history. I mean, it was a little alarming to see that at first I thought it was a cookies thing. And then I read it and thought, Whoa, 
I mean, it's y'all have a very detailed approach to a very unique problem that all that seems to be catching a lot of uh, things that most people wouldn't think about. You're absolutely right. That's the purpose of that pop up um, because that is is a problem, um, and and that's the benefit of having all of these thought leaders and stakeholders in domestic violence finally sitting at one table together talking about all of these issues and identifying how we can across different sectors be really mindful, um, make sure that we're keeping all of those things uh, at the forefront of our mind that, you know, when you provide resources to a victim and, and they're looking for it online, their offender might be one of those that stalks what they're doing on social media or uh, their, their web history. So we want to be sure that you know, if someone's on the website, they can quickly exit from the site and it actually redirects them to a completely other, a different page. So if an offender walks into the room, they they don't know that they, they were looking at a domestic violence um, help. And that's something that you'll commonly see in other domestic violence uh, websites as well. I, I You know, I, I haven't visited many of them, but um, I was looking at it. It was pretty surprising to me. You know, you've got a, uh, obviously a passion for this community. You run for office, you're, you're volunteering your time on that. You know, it's very, it's pretty rare. We get people that are born and raised in San Antonio, just general observations. What are some of the big things that you have seen change about this community? Um, and, you know, really in your adult time, which you have, you know, a better appreciation for what's going on. I mean, but besides, you know, the the landscape, um, I, I just feel like there's a, a, and what I mentioned before, just this new appreciation for the old in San Antonio. Um, I, I don't think much has changed about this city. This has always been a, a the cliche. It's been a small, a, a small town city, even though we're the seventh largest uh, city in the nation. Um, and that's what I love about San Antonio is that the people, the character, the community, doesn't change. Uh, we have really good people here. It's a friendly community. Um, it's uh, a community that really supports uh, your ability to succeed when you're born and raised here or anyone that comes here. It's it's a community where you can really rise to the top um, if, you, if you put the, the work into it because everyone is so friendly and willing to help. So um, I, while the landscape has changed and the river walk has changed, I, I don't think much else about it has changed. And that's why I love it here. And while I'll, while I'll continue to love it here and, and we'll be here for, for quite a long time. I would say you're a, a fairly progressive thinker. What are some of the things you hope to see San Antonio accomplish or, or become over the next 10 or 15 years? Well, without uh, kind of commenting on issues, <laughs> um, I'd like to see us uh, you know, be a community that is uh, very aware of our environment, um, that takes steps, uh, additional steps to protect it. I think that, you know, we have done a, a fairly good job of that. I'd like to see it be more walkable, um, uh, be more encouraging, uh, again, to that end goal um, of, uh, of being able to enjoy it without a vehicle like I have <laughs> one day. Um, so, you know, I, I want it to be a good city for, for my children, for our children's children to live in. And that's, that's a safe city, both environmentally and otherwise. So um, I think we're taking a step in the right direction um, across the board though. And, uh, and I'm really proud of uh, a lot of the, the leadership that we have seen that has taken us to where we are today. There's a lot of work to do. Um, but I think we're definitely going in the right direction. You know, I, I had, uh, I've had a lot of people on here to talk about a lot of things, but recently a lot of the, the ongoing discussions have been about how do we get 
higher paying jobs into this community. It's just really been interesting. Even like some of the people that are sort of the most informed, it's kind of one of those, you know, it's the white whale. Um, it, it seems to have eluded us for a long time. That's a really great point. Um, I mean, we, we are very economically segregated. Um, and I, I would like to see that change. That's a, that's a big, a tall order. Um, so I'd like to see more equity uh, in our community, more opportunity for uh, folks that um, haven't been as fortunate as I have with the opportunities that I've, I've been blessed with. Um, so that, that's a huge thing. And that really has an impact disproportionately on women. You know, I, I, I used to serve on the mayor's commission for the status of women who commissioned a report not too long ago that uh, broke down uh, the the disproportionate impact of that economic segregation on women in our community. And that directly ties to domestic violence as well, um, increases uh, in domestic violence as a result of that. So I would like to see us continue to make more steps towards, uh, towards equity. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I've, I've enjoyed watching uh, Mayor Ron Nuremberg take some of those steps in that direction um, as well. Uh, but it's something that we need to continue doing. Um, for any of our listeners who kind of think I'd like to run for office one day, or, you know, I want to be more involved. You're one of the most involved people I know in this city. What's sort of, I mean, it is a weird question. You'd think, oh, just get involved, but it's really not that easy. What is your advice for people that want to be more involved and give back to the community in a, you know, a more meaningful way? I think first identifying what matters to you uh, and, and what you want to make an impact on is the first step. Um, and, and the next step is, is identifying individuals, leaders in our community that are already working on those issues. Those can be organizations, they can be elected officials. And if you don't know where to start, your elected officials are actually a great place to start. They're a great resource. Our, our legislators and our council members, they really have um, insight into all of the different groups and people that are working on every issue that you can imagine. So if you don't know where to start, I would recommend calling your, your city council member's office or your state house representatives or your congress member's office. And that's a really good place to start. They're often very helpful in terms of directing you, uh, you know, towards groups that work on particular issues. And then just start going to meetings, get involved, introduce yourself, um, get a feel for, for those groups or those leaders and see if it really is a good fit for you. And that will open so many doors for you. Just being present, um, making the time to to find out where to go and to just show up is is really the the hardest part about it. And it will open every other door that you need from there. That that's what what I was able to do, um, and I've watched so many other people, um, you know, really flourish in this community by taking that approach. So that's what I would recommend. Well, so I told you sort of what the timeline would be. Um, I've been ending all of these previously last year, I would say what my top three guests were, but now I'm asking people, you know, if you were in my shoes, who were people that you would want to interview from San Antonio? I mean, coach pops always number one. He'll never do it, but you know, I'm going to keep saying it. Oh man. Coach pops is, is has to be everybody's number one. Yeah. I think, um, Let's see. Um, I would like to hear from um, some of the younger leaders of the movements that we have seen uh, in San Antonio lately. Um, I'm, there's so so much talent here in like the next generations underneath us um, that I, I'd be really interested to tap into those folks. Um, 
I will say one of my personal favorites is uh, that I'd love to see on the show is Hannah Beck. Oh, uh, yeah. This was my former campaign manager. I was just uh, just became the interim executive director for the Texas Democratic Party. I didn't know and, that. Uh, on top of that, she formed Move San Antonio. Uh, that's now become Move Texas. So, so Drew I think Galloway was a guest. I'm sorry. Drew Galloway was a guest. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. So, uh, I'll reach out to Hannah. Favorite. Yeah. Yeah. We emailed not that long ago about something. Uh, she reached out. So is she in the running to be the ED or is she, she just is interim? interim ED now? So I guess that's considered being in the running for, yeah. for the ED. good so for she, her. She stepped into that role. And then election season's coming up. Um, people are going to start running again soon. So maybe having some of uh, the folks that are running for office soon. I know uh, some of my colleagues like Judge Mary Lou Alvarez would love to come on and talk to you, I'm sure, about her upcoming election too. Um, you know, Brockhouse was supposed to come on and I wanted to get him on before he announced and he just kept counseling. So I don't think I'm going to get him. I'm next sorry. time. Next time. <laughs> uh, by the way, have you watched his podcast? I did not know he had a podcast. It's called The Brockcast. I mean... You know, whatever, if you like him politically, but it's a pretty good name for a podcast. The broadcast. It's catchy. It's catchy. I, I can't blame him. Uh, you, should, you should take a look at it and, and sit tight. This is going to do it for this episode. Uh, Judge, thank you so much for doing this. Really, it was a lot of great information because I've seen this kind of pop up on social media. I've seen articles, San Antonio Report, but I really never got my hands around it uh, until today. So I appreciate you talking to us. Thank you for the opportunity, Justin. Okay. Just sit tight. Let me close all this down. Okay.